0: I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind, and I love my work, the opportunity to talk with remarkably enlightened people about things that really matter to all of us. And honestly, the most fun I have is when I hear from listeners I've never met, often from places I've never visited, who've been touched by our Humankind program. The grants we get from the funders you hear named on our program simply don't cover all our expenses. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep the program and this podcast going. Please visit humanmedia.org, and at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Additional funding for this series has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Institutes of Health, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and the Park Foundation.
1: What so many of these kids need more than anything is just someone to be able to talk to them, talk to them, talk to them. And then when there is a crisis, and there will be many, to be able to talk them through it.
0: Journalist turned activist Katie Davis with tales of her one woman campaign to save inner city kids. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Katie Davis, journalist, mentor, conflict mediator, gardener, camp counselor, community activist, has lived most of her life in the Adams Morgan section of Washington, D.C. It's a place, she says, where the streets can be treacherous. Young people roaming there, kids she knows who have too many unstructured hours and too few good role models, are vulnerable to gangs, weapons, alcohol, and drugs. Is it hard for you to live in a neighborhood with those characteristics?
1: Yes, it is actually. Um, It's difficult because there's so much need and there's only so much you can do. And I'm not really talking about money at this point. Money can be raised. I've learned how to do it. But there's so much emotional need uh, for them to be able to call you or come knock on the door and say, Someone just pulled a gun on me. Or my mom is laid out flat drunk in front of the Safeway. What do I do? Or, uh, you know, one girl told me, you know, I feel like killing my grandmother. I mean, like, oh, my God, why are you telling me this? Um, and I had to actually listen and do things about those three stories I just told you. I had to act. So some, sometimes and for some reason these things come in waves you know they're not spread out one a week. They invariably there'll be two calm weeks, and then three things will happen at the same time. And that's when I sort of become an emergency social worker.
0: Do you think they prepare you one for the next?
1: A little bit. I am getting better at it. I have a better Rolodex now. I know that things pass. That you sometimes you just gotta talk kids through. But I also know that you have to um, act in some situations. The girl was homicidal. I mean, I ha- I got her in touch with a psychiatrist. I mean, that's dangerous. Um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, great Colombian writer, Nobel Prize laureate. He he used to call himself an emergency politician because there was such a great need in Latin America for leaders. Now I- I'm not saying that I'm. Uh, an emergency politician, but I am an emergency worker, an emergency social worker sometimes. And then sometimes five years later, I'll feel capable of telling the story. It, I cannot tell them right away. And I, ver- I almost never grab my equipment.
0: Your recording equipment? Yeah,
1: my recording equipment. I, I never do in the moment of an emergency.
0: Um, it can wait.
1: Yeah. Which goes against everything you're taught as a journalist, everything you're taught as a journalist.
0: It's almost impossible to pigeonhole Katie Davis into any single career category. She is an experienced journalist who, for 15 years, reported for National Public Radio. Since leaving the network in 1995 after a personnel dispute, she's still heard on various public radio programs, presenting a series of occasional pieces she calls neighborhood stories. The stories are drawn from her real-life encounters with the kids of Adams Morgan, who now take up most of her time the kids she counsels informally or cajoles into activities at an urban summer camp she started, or chats with as she strolls leisurely through Walter Pierce Park. It's a whole vibrant, diverse community of people that Katie Davis says she didn't really tune into during her days as a globetrotting news reporter.
1: After I got out of college, And I came back down to Washington, D.C., and I got a job in public radio, and I began to work extremely hard. I I loved what I was doing, and I would go to work at 7 in the morning and work till 7 at night and work on my days off. (laughs) And what that meant was I might walk home after getting off of work, into my uh, neighborhood that I'd grown up in. But I was so busy thinking about my stories and what I was going to do when I got back to work the next day uh, that I didn't see anything. And I also didn't hear anything. And um, I didn't know anybody. I knew the people I worked with. But, uh, and I could tell you everything about South Africa, or uh, Eastern Europe or Russia, depending on what I was interested in at the time and passionate about, but I couldn't tell you anything about my local government or the neighborhood so I was living there, but really I was treating my neighborhood as a and my home as a hotel essentially
0: So what prompted you to open your eyes and and start to take in the the smells of your neighborhood?
1: I'll give you just one quick example I was assigned to cover a story about a gun squad in Washington, D.C. It was a new initiative of the police to try to take the guns off the street. And if you'll remember the late 80s and the early 90s in Washington, D.C., there was this terrible murder rate and a lot of guns coming out of turf wars and drug wars and, and crack cocaine. So I drove around. I booked an interview with the police, and I drove around with them. And what do you know? We're driving through my neighborhood at night and in alleys and they're showing me things and they're telling me, the police are saying, yes, this is one of the most dangerous areas in the city. We've got a lot of young men carrying guns and talking about how to get these guns away from these young men. And we were not on my street, but maybe four or five blocks over. And this really began to gnaw at me. Why didn't I know this? Why could I tell you so much about Nelson Mandela, Walter Sisulu, Umkontowe Siswe, which is the armed wing of the Na- African National Congress? Why could I tell you all of that, and nothing about why young black men felt compelled to carry guns and sometimes use them against each other? Why couldn't I explain this or even even understand it? Everything I do these days seems to grow organically and very slowly, but when I first left my job at NPR, I really didn't know what I was going to do, so I was sitting around a lot. I mean, literally sitting on my porch. I live in a townhouse, it's the same townhouse I grew up in since I was about 10 years old, so I'm sitting around, I have my dogs out there, and I'm talking for days and days and hours. because. I'm at home. I'm not having that kind of social contact that you have at work. And I started meeting kids. And the kids would stop, and they could tell that I wasn't hurried. I would talk to them. And then they started, like, saying, you know, coming and sitting with me. Can I pet your dog? Oh, you're gardening. Could I help you? And uh, very slowly, this began to percolate And I realized that these kids truly needed things to do. Uh, they, They didn't have things to do. And I thought, hey, I could organize that. And so that's how it started, very slowly with about, I think, 12 kids. The first summer we only met twice a week for two hours. And the kids named the group the Urban Rangers because I took them into our neighborhood park, and we were gardening a lot because I love to garden. And, um, you know, somebody one day said, you know, we're like park rangers. And they were very little then. Uh, they were like 10, 11, 12. And now as they got older, they were like, well, we're the urban rangers. You know, they were embarrassed by the name. And, uh, and I tried to get a really hip logo, but that still didn't matter. But, um, and now that first crop of kids is, there in their early 20s. And, um, You know, one's in art school, one's skiing, one is a a really intense community activist. One is in Iraq, sadly, and I worry about him every day, EB. Um, And uh, I would just have to look at the list. But, but, you know, and now I have a new crop of 10 and 11 and 12-year-olds. So they graduate eventually
0: and move on. Now known formally as the Urban Rangers Youth Service Corps, Katie's kids have planted trees together, embarked on an oral history project of their neighborhood, attended training in conflict mediation, and created a stunning, brightly colored five panel mural inspired by the deaths of two teenagers. Katie Davis presently works with about 50 kids from Adams Morgan and the nearby Columbia Heights neighborhood. She takes no salary and meets the out of pocket expenses through grants and charitable gifts. But her main source of support and inspiration remains the urban rangers themselves.
1: I almost always take my cue from the kids. So when we were first getting started, we'd hike around and do fun things and swim and garden. Um, and then the kids were very interested in bikes. And somehow somebody noticed I was hanging around with kids, so he gave us like three old bikes. And I thought, well, this is really nice, but... I don't know what to do with them. And, uh, I mean, I couldn't tell you. And the kids didn't really know. They sort of knew. So I asked the owner of the local bike shop, City Bikes, and they are very progressive, involved people. And he actually set up one-day fix-a-bike workshops in our community park. He'd bring all the equipment in, and he'd fix, like, 25 bikes in one day. And we did that, like, three, three or four times. And really the kids would just be electrified. And they'd be so happy with their bikes. And they were getting bikes. And then it became this link that maybe camp was over, but the kids would come back and say, I really need an inner tube. And I'd give them a note to go up to City Bikes and get one, and I'd pay for it. And uh, and then the guy from City Bikes said, you know, you ought to start a recycle bicycle program and have a kind of clearer curriculum and teaching kids certain things with the subtext of teaching them discipline and responsibility, and we researched it and we did it. And I have a beautiful bike workshop in Washington D.C., and that was funded by some small grants and by the City Bikes bike shop. And then all the kids cycled through that. A lot of kids did. I think quite I probably,
0: quite literally.
1: Exactly, and uh, probably gave away maybe. 50 old bikes and then I started seeing that the kids were small so they needed smaller bikes and we started getting them to do community service and earn hours towards a new bike so if they did like 30 hours of community service I'd give them a brand new spanking gorgeous BMX bike
0: What is community service for a little kid?
1: Well, it can be many things. We Sometimes we would garden. We installed tree boxes. Well, we had a, an iron worker install tree boxes on our main community drag, Columbia Road. But we gardened them, watered them, mulched them, and we do that all the time. Right now, they are atrociously overgrown. The city in Washington, D.C. does not do that. So we do that. We might uh, paint a mural. We did one mural. We repainted an information kiosk that n- nobody takes care of. Um, sometimes we pick up litter, but just making them pick up litter, I think, is kind of torturous. And we planted, and this has been going on for eight years, a long perennial border of bushes and flowers. And when we first planted them, they were these tiny little, you know, plants, maybe six inches high, and they're about eight feet high now. And it is a wildlife habitat. It tracks butterflies and bees, and it actually is a good thing for the air and for pollination and everything. So community service projects differ all the time. We've planted grasses in the Chesapeake and cleaned up a cemetery. It depends what's going on in the neighborhood.
0: So have you seen the kids uh, visibly learn from these projects and grow in in ways that will make a real difference for them?
1: Not all the time, to be really honest, no. Um, I can, we can have all sorts of lessons about don't throw litter. We even once had the trash Olympics where the kids had to throw trash in the cans. And I can see them in the neighborhood three hours later throwing trash but here's what I'll say. A dialogue has been created between me and the kids, and I can say, honey, you oh, that slipped out of your hand, didn't it? And they'll pick it up. You know, they they know me, we have a dialogue. And I don't think you always know the entire impact of what you do when you're doing it. What I do know is that They've learned that people, some people in their neighborhood really are interested in them, care about them. They can do something really beautiful and positive for their neighborhood, even if it's just stopping traffic and helping a little kid across the street. Um, so I I don't always see the impact, but um, I trust that it's there, and I can't wait to see these kids in their 30s because I think that maybe— When they're in their 30s, they might come visit me and tell me some stories about what they're doing.
0: We're talking with Katie Davis, a public radio journalist who has become a youth worker in the Adams-Morgan section of Washington, D.C. Her group of mostly minority teenagers is called the Urban Rangers Youth Service Corps which operates a free summer camp and during the school year provides mentoring and tutoring to inner-city kids. The young people are encouraged to join in activities that educate them and provide a genuine community service. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg.
1: Somebody that I worked with when he was 14 and he, he grew up in a very tough part of our neighborhood that I had him when he was 14. He was on my basketball team and I created a very nice relationship with him. And then I wasn't really in touch with him and he got into some pretty pretty bad stuff. And um, you know, he didn't ever go to prison or anything, but he was definitely living on the wild side. And but he stayed in touch with me and we had a good relationship and then I heard about a really great program where young People who are 17 or 18 are trained to work in nonprofits, and I really pushed him to do it. And unlike some kids, he actually filled out the form and did it. And it's completely transformed his life. He's now he's African American. He is one of the undisputed leaders in our community. I mean, like when Nigel walks through, everybody's like, "Yeah." And um. Nobody's afraid of him because he's really down with the kids. He knows everything that they know. He knows how hard it is to grow up and how tempting it is to be in the life. But he's turned away from it. He's a really neat guy.
0: One of the things about your story that intrigues me is when you pass that unpainted kiosk, it registers on you. (laughs) Somebody should take the initiative to go and paint it. When you pass the area that's littered, it registers on you, let's try to clean up and have a trash Olympics. What makes the difference so that you notice and act and the rest of us may pass by unaware?
1: Well, first of all, I will never walk through the neighborhood with headphones on listening to music. I never, I don't have a cell phone. I'm not saying you shouldn't have one, but I do not talk to people on cell phones in the street. I, and that is not because I think it's bad if you do. I just, I'm really hungry. I'm really curious about my environment and about people's body language. And that if you are more open and you try to catch people's eye, chances are you're going to catch it. You know, let's say you're walking by and like, for some reason, a squirrel does like a loop-de-loop, something crazy in front of you. You look over, and the other person's kind of cracking up, too, and you catch their eye, and you laugh. Or, I think that's it. I go out into the neighborhood. Sometimes I say, I'm, I, I'm leaving the house, and I say, I'll be back in five minutes because I'm going to the corner store. Then I always kind of oh, make that 20 because the reality is, is that walking down my street, I'm going to stop. I'm going to look. I'm going to talk, and I think that is a very basic and simple thing that we can all do and not lock out what's around us. And then one more thing about the trash is that uh, it, it, it is so simplistic, but if you pick up the trash in your neighborhood or in your park and you do it consistently, and the same if you scrub off the graffiti or paint something looking nice, it usually stays nicer longer. I'm not saying people aren't gonna throw the trash away. But and then they see you doing it. And that's another point of entry with people. Uh, the kids just get completely praised. One thing they like about community service is that people come up and go, You guys are great. You're cleaning, you're gardening, and you know, they like that. That people that they don't even know who frankly probably are usually afraid of them because. They're wearing the big baggy pants and they look, I mean honestly they look like thugs. You wouldn't necessarily try to have eye contact with them, but there they are and they're cleaning and then somebody who normally would maybe be a little wary of them, there's a connection.
0: Katie Davis's enthusiasm inevitably spills into her other life as an occasional journalist, whether for public radio programs or the magazines and newspapers she sometimes publishes articles in. And by telling stories of the inner-city teenagers she's met through her youth outreach work, Katie is really wearing two hats. She's a direct participant in the lives of these kids, and she's also a reporter, but with no pretense of neutrality no attempt to maintain the normal distance expected of objective journalism. And she's not really bothered by the blurring of these roles.
1: I do not understand the rigid distinctions that people try to make between journalists and citizen activism. Look, I live in a community. I am no longer happy parachuting in and out and reporting dramatic stories. I live in a community. I want to know it inside and out, and I still want to report on it. Yes, I will disclose that I have a bias and motives and all sorts of prior knowledge of certain things, but I think that the listening public can make those distinctions and a good, hard editor.
0: So what is your vision for the proper role of journalism in a society where the journalists themselves are participants?
1: Well, let me say, first of all, I don't think everyone is interested in in being a journalist like that, and I don't think they have to be. Um, I do think, though, if they have any kind of inclination, there should be a little more latitude. I feel that I'm still exploring this and figuring this out, but I consider myself now, uh, an activist observer i i initiate things in my community and my neighborhood and then often i write about them now people say well that's pretty crass you're just initiating some effort with a young man to try and get him away from gangs so you can do a story about it it doesn't happen that way usually i and working with a young person, and after a couple years, it occurs to me that it would be interesting to talk to them about something, about trying to get away from a gang, or document something. I did a story about a young man in my neighborhood who um, lived in a very wretched situation, a home life, where there was a lot of poverty and drug abuse, and his mom and dad were dead. And he was really kind of drowning uh, starting to skip school a lot. And uh, he got an opportunity to go to a boarding school. And when I heard about that opportunity, I thought, that's a great story. I want to cover that from day one. But I had known this kid. His name is Jesse. I had known this kid for two years. That's how I found out about the story. It wasn't in a newspaper. You know, I heard it organically in my neighborhood. And I had already been his basketball coach. He knew me. And so to to ask him to sit and talk to me sometimes was a reasonable request. So ask me that question in 20 years and I'll really have a quick answer, but I am just figuring it out.
0: In trying to capture what she calls the anatomy of a neighborhood, the neighborhood where she's a youth worker, Katie Davis allows her listeners and readers to eavesdrop on rough-edged kids, who gradually reveal how they feel when someone calls them fat boy or thug, or on a frustrated 16-year-old who cannot read and really wants to learn how.
1: I'm just grateful for the chance actually to tell some of the story, because if I just do these things and I don't tell the stories, then they're not fully realized. I mean, I want to tell them so that people might get an idea, or they might just think it's funny or want to write me email or something, but uh, the telling is a big part of it, so if you start doing stuff yourself, just make sure you're telling it. Write a letter to the editor, tell your church, tell your friends, go to a coffee house, give a reading, whatever. Just the telling's very important. It's part of one thing that we still have from our tribal roots we can is telling.
0: Ins- we can inspire, inspire each other. Absolutely
1: inspire, reassure, comfort. <laughs> You know all
0: of it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Katie Davis, founder of the Urban Rangers Youth Service Corps, a group mostly of minority teenagers in the Adams Morgan section of Washington DC. Her occasional reports are entitled Neighborhood Stories. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Steve Colby. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal. Special thanks to Hope Magazine. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with The Network, Incorporated. Program development and support provided by Chart Media.
1: You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org.
0: This segment with Katie Davis is Humankind Program Number 70.
1: The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio.